Well, hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus and uh, excited to, uh, to teach from God's word this morning. Before we start, I just wonder how many of you were here Friday night for the Brad Gray event, the restoration of all things. Wasn't that awesome? Brad did such a good job. Yeah. Such a good job taking us all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and just, man, I learned a ton. I bet you did too. And, uh, and my good friend Kevin Mangin came up to me afterwards knowing that I was teaching this morning and he said, man, I'd hate to be the guy that has to follow that. And it was at that moment that I thought, Paul Muma, you dog. <laughs> you knew exactly what you were doing, didn't you? Didn't you? Yeah. But uh, the cool thing is we're going to see, even, even from what Brad taught Friday night, how some of those details that he drew out tie in to this story that we're going to study in John chapter 4. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We've been studying the life and the ministry of Jesus, the fact that he was fully God and yet also fully man. And what does that mean? And, and how does that even work? Well, it's the, the, the passage that we just saw from Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And in his book, Four Chair Disciple Making, Dan Spader says it this way. He says that, that never less than God, Jesus chose to live his life Never more than man. That's on your notes page if you want to write that down. We're going to come back to that thought throughout this message and throughout this series. That Jesus, never less than God, chose to live his life never more than man. Because Jesus was fully God, but he added humanity to his deity. And he lived a life of humble obedience to the Father. And it was an obedience that led him all the way to the cross. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means that when we talk about Jesus as our model for life and ministry, you've probably heard us say that, it means that, that when we talk about the fact that, that we, we need to have the mind of Christ, that we need to have the heart of Christ, that we need to walk as Jesus walked, it means those things aren't far-fetched ideas. Because you and I have the very same resources that Jesus relied on in the days of his flesh. We have the word of God. If you're a believer, you have the spirit of God living inside of you. We're able to approach God the Father through prayer. And I know that for me, before I wrestled with Jesus' full humanity... You know, as I would read through the Gospels and I'd see the things that Jesus did and I'd see how he knew things and how would he possibly know that? Well, of course, because he was God, right? Of course he did those things. Of course he was perfect. Of course he was obedient. Jesus, in my mind, was a little bit more God than man. But if he was fully God and fully man, then we have to believe that we can really do the things that Jesus said we could do. We can really walk as he walked. We can really have that mind of Christ because he was made like us in every way, the writer of Hebrews tells us. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. And so you and I will never be sinless, but we should sin less as we grow more and more in the image of Jesus and as we learn to rely on those resources that he relied on. Again, it's the word and the Holy Spirit and prayer. And so for the last several weeks, we've been looking at the start of, of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John. We looked at his baptism. We looked at the calling of his first disciples. And then last week, we saw Jesus perform his first miracle, water to wine. 
And now after this, John tells us that Jesus is going to travel down to Capernaum. And then he tells us he traveled up to Jerusalem. And notice on the map, those, uh, those directions seem backwards, don't they? When, when you and I talk about up and down, we're talking about north and south, aren't we? If I say I'm going to go up to Fort Wayne, I'm going to travel north. If I'm going down to Bloomington, I'm going to travel south. But you need to know that in the Gospels, up and down aren't, aren't uh, references to direction, they're references to elevation. And anyone who has been to the Holy Land will tell you that as you travel uh, south to Jerusalem, you're literally traveling up. You're going uphill as you go into the city. And so he goes down to Jerusalem and some significant things happen while he is there. This is when Jesus will clear the temple. He cleanses the temple and his disciples remember what was said about him, that zeal for my house will consume me. That's Psalm 69 and it's a messianic psalm that was pointing toward the coming Messiah. After he does that, he meets at night with one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So we call this Nick at night, right? And uh, Nicodemus comes at night because he doesn't want his Pharisee friends knowing that he's interested in what Jesus has to say. But this is where Jesus uh, speaks the best known verse in all the Bible. And he says, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And so after that interaction with Nicodemus, we're told that, that Jesus travels to the Judean countryside near his cousin John the Baptist, and, and Jesus' disciples begin baptizing there as well. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story today, John chapter 4, verse 1, and we read this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now watch this. It says he had to go through Samaria. And when we look at the map, that seems about right. Okay, this would be Judea in the south. This town of Sychar is in the region of Samaria. And Jesus is headed toward Galilee. And so that seems natural, doesn't it? If you're going to travel from Judea up to Galilee right on through Samaria seems to be the most direct route, right? It's like if we were going to leave here and go to Indianapolis, we'd go through Fishers. There's other ways around, but that's the most direct route is straight through Fishers. But understand that for a first century Jew, the thought of taking this most direct route through Samaria would not have been considered. As a matter of fact, a good Jew would add about 50 miles to their trip just to avoid traveling through Samaria. They would either go up the coast or travel out here to the east and up because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And if you were here Friday night, this is part of what Brad Gray told us about. In fact, we're going to see a little bit later in the text that the Jews and the Samaritans, they had no dealings with one another, none. Because the Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds and idolaters. And this all began back in 722 BC when the Assyrian Empire attacked the northern part of Israel. They came into the northern kingdom. They deported all of the northern kingdom men. They sent their own men in to the northern kingdom of Israel to intermarry with the, the Jewish women. And the product of that is what became the people of Samaria. This is where they came from. They were half-Jews, and they were a reminder of a terrible time in Israel's history. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. 
The racial tension between these two people groups was intense. And I wish we had something to compare that to today. Uh, But thankfully, racial tension isn't something that we have to deal with anymore, is it? Of course it is. Of course it is. We, we can't let a week go by without hearing about some protest or some kind of violence or, or some athletes taking a knee. Why? Because racial tension is as real today as it was in Jesus' day. And what I want you to see, just as a side note here, is for people who would say that the Bible has nothing relevant to say to today, here we are 2,000 years later facing the same issue that Jesus faced in his day. And I think we have a lot to learn from what Jesus is about to model for us. Because here's the interesting thing. John recorded in John chapter 4 that Jesus had to travel through Samaria. He had to do it. Not because there weren't other routes. We've seen that there were, and a good Jew would have taken those other routes. But rather, the verb that John uses here to communicate, it it says essentially that Jesus is being obedient to a command. Jesus isn't acting on his own will. He had to travel through Samaria in obedience to his father. Now, why would the father want Jesus to go there? Well, I love what James McDonald says about this, and it's in your notes. I want you to write this down. He says that Jesus is teaching through his obedience that the gospel is for everyone and racism will not be tolerated in God's kingdom. It won't be tolerated in his kingdom, it won't be tolerated in his family, and it won't be tolerated in his church. And God forgive us if we have allowed any form of racism to take hold in our hearts. May we identify it and confess it and ask God to root it out of us today because the gospel is for everyone and racism will not be tolerated in God's kingdom. Now the lens that we need to read this whole passage through is that lens right there. That the gospel is for everyone and racism will not be tolerated. Now watch what happens as Jesus enters Samaria in verse 5. It says, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. So he's right here in the region of Samaria. He came to that region near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, this is a significant location. Okay, the text tells us that Jacob's well was there, and it's pointing back to the Old Testament, to the time of Jacob and his son Joseph. This was around 2000 BC when Jacob gave uh, this well to his son, and this is so cool. The well that this text is likely referencing is still in existence today. We have a picture of it that I want to show you. About 3,500 years later, they found it inside of a convent, and obviously the building was built around it later, but right there is the well uh, that this text is likely referencing. Uh, And once they cleaned out all of the debris, they believed that in the time of Christ, and certainly in the time of Jacob, that this well would have been about a hundred feet deep. Now think about that for a minute. Uh, How many of you have ever put a fence post in the ground? Okay, it's tough to get three feet down sometimes, right? And that's even with the right tools. These guys got 100 feet down by hand without modern equipment. And that's significant to this story. The depth of this well is significant because in his humanity, Jesus is tired, right? He's been walking all day in this dry, desert-like climate. And he's thirsty and he'd love to have a drink. And he comes to this well 
but the water's 100 feet down there and he has nothing to draw it with. And so you say, well, well he's, he's God, right? Just do a miracle. Make yourself a bucket. Make a rope. Get you some water. But remember, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. And never less than God, Jesus chose to live his life never more than man. And we see in this passage Jesus' humanity just fully expressed here. And so Jesus sits down and watch what happens next in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. So pause right there. Remember, I, I told you the racial tension between Jews and Samaritans was real. And it wasn't lost on this Samaritan woman that this Jewish man was breaking all of the rules. Right? She's thinking... First of all, what are you doing here, right? Are you lost? Are you out of your mind? You're in Samaria. You're a Jew. Don't you know where you are? And I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you talking to me? The text says that that she asked him, how can you ask me for a drink? Because, see, this woman knew that the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would never consider drinking out of a vessel that a Samaritan had drank out of. I'm not going to put my lips on something that your lips have been on. That's disgusting, There's no way I'm going to drink after you. I'm not going to touch something a Samaritan has touched. The text says, because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. It's racism, folks. Racism. And God hates it. He will not tolerate it. I just want you to see that Jesus is breaking all of the rules. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Keep that phrase in mind. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? So see that that this woman, she's caught off guard by this Jewish man who seems lost or crazy to be in Samaria in the first place. He's willing to talk to her, even to drink after her. And now she must be thinking, okay, this, this makes sense. You're clearly out of your mind, right? You're offering to give me water. You have no bucket. You have no rope. Uh, the water's 100 feet down there. But here's the point, and I want you to write this down. The woman saw only the physical reality Jesus wanted her to see the spiritual reality, okay? The woman saw only the physical reality. No rope, no bucket, the water's 100 feet down, you can't give me anything. But Jesus wanted her to see the spiritual reality, living water. It's the gift of heaven. And it's often true for us too, isn't it? We often view our lives from only a physical point of view when God wants us to see the spiritual point of view. It's why the New Testament writers remind us over and over again that we are to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Not on what is temporary, but what's eternal. It's why Peter tells us to set our hearts on things above and to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so Jesus answers her in verse 13, and he says, Everyone who drinks this water, referencing the well, everyone who drinks that, they'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So Jesus goes right back to the spiritual reality, doesn't he? 
Maybe she'll get it this time. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She missed it again, didn't she? She's so stuck on the physical and it's hard work getting water, right? There were no faucets. There there wasn't a tap just to turn on and to get water. She had to travel who knows how far with this bucket and 100 feet of rope. She had to drop it 100 feet down into this hole in the ground and haul it up at eight pounds per gallon. And then she had to carry it all the way home. And as soon as that water was used up, man, she had to come right back again and do it all over again. It was likely a daily chore, if not multiple times a day, coming to this well to get water. So the thought of never being thirsty again, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? No more trips to the well. She says, give it to me. I want that. I'm sick and tired of carrying this water. And now Jesus goes straight for her heart in verse 16. And he says, go, call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Okay, so so now it makes sense. Right, Because it's weird that this woman has come to draw water alone. Because in the first century, drawing water, it would have been a community event. And this would have been the highlight of the day for a first century Jewish woman. Everybody came to the well together. They shared in the work. It was a time for them to, to socialize, to talk about what's going on at home. How are the kids? How's your husband? Did you hear so-and-so got a new donkey and it's got leather seats? Like, this wasn't something you did alone unless you were an outcast. Like, if you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband, well, then you'd have to come alone. Like, then you wouldn't be welcome at the well because you'd be marked as immoral and you'd be ostracized. And Jesus speaks straight to it, doesn't he? I mean, John tells us in the opening of his gospel that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we've certainly seen the grace part, haven't we? Coming to this land that was thought of as unclean, talking to this woman and even willing to drink after her, even though she's been marked as unclean. These are all pictures of his grace, but he was also full of truth. And Jesus doesn't ignore sin, ever. He calls it what it is. And watch how the woman responds in verse 19. Well, sir, the woman said, I I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So the lady's like, okay, enough about me. Let's talk about something else, right? Uh, Let's get off of the topic of my dating life. And Jesus goes with it in verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in the truth. See, Jesus knows that this is a hot topic, 
Okay, this is a major point of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, where they're going to worship. The Jews insisted that worship had to happen in Jerusalem at the temple, but they didn't allow the Samaritans to come and worship there with them. And so the Samaritans set up a place of worship on Mount Gerizim, and, uh, and the Jews hated the Samaritans for it. They viewed them as idolaters. You're doing it wrong. God doesn't accept that. We don't accept you. But Jesus says, stop worrying about the location. True worshipers will be marked not by where they worship, but by the fact that they worship in spirit and in truth. And what does that mean? Well, Paul points out in Romans chapter 12 that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your true and proper worship. Or other translations say, this is your spiritual act of worship. It's offering our very lives in sacrifice to God. And Jesus is saying to this woman, you're focused on the outside, I'm looking at what's inside. You're worried about where, I'm worried about your heart. You're focused on the rules, I'm talking about a relationship. But she doesn't want to hear that. And so in verse 25, the woman said, well, I know Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Okay, she's just kind of dismissing what Jesus just said. But now Jesus is ready to put all of his cards on the table. And in verse 26, Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Drop the mic, game over, it's me. The woman says, Messiah will explain it. And Jesus is like, I just did, right? I am he. Verse 27, just then the disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? But clearly that's what they wanted to ask, right? Or it wouldn't be mentioned here. Again, just highlighting the racial tension that was felt by everyone, but no one was saying it. So verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. And if you read on in the text later today, what you will find is that because of the testimony of this one woman, many Samaritans believed in Jesus. But I want you to realize what Jesus has just done to bring this woman to the point where she not only believes, but now she is going out and she is evangelizing everyone from her town. Remember, Jesus came to this well in his humanity, tired and thirsty. And by the way, he never got that drink he was looking for, right? At least the text doesn't say that he did. But notice that he used a very real need in his own life to begin a spiritual conversation with this woman. And somewhere in the middle of it all, it became less about Jesus' physical need and all about this woman's spiritual need. And that's something that, that I think Jesus is intentionally modeling for his disciples and for you and I. I think it's important for us to see this because we often think about sharing Christ with others within the context of meeting their need, don't we? We think, if I, if I can provide for someone's need, I'll build that relationship, and then that will give me a, a basis in their life to share Jesus with them. And Jesus certainly models that for us elsewhere in the scriptures. But here it's reversed. Jesus begins with his own physical need, and that opens the door to providing for this woman's spiritual need. And so the question I want you to consider is this. 
What need do I have that I could leverage to begin a spiritual conversation? What need do I have in my life right now that I could leverage to begin a spiritual conversation? Because here's the thing, I think we're going to have to be intentional about this. Because we live in America, and we are self-sufficient people. If we need a bucket and a rope, we go to Lowe's and we buy them, don't we? We just go get what we need. But what if we became intentional about using those needs as opportunities to begin spiritual conversations with the people around us who don't know Christ A couple of years ago, Dan Spader introduced this concept to me, and I got to thinking about my neighbors, two guys that I've built friendships with and uh, and who I hope to share the love of Christ with. And here's the thing, they both have things that I don't have and sometimes need. I have a two-story home and a six-foot ladder, okay? And so you can imagine that there are times when I need a much bigger ladder. And my neighbor, Ben, he's got one. And he's got a really nice one. It folds up in all kinds of different configurations and extends to 22 feet. And so instead of just going out and providing for my own needs, I ask Ben if I can borrow his ladder. And every time I do, it's another opportunity to stand in Ben's garage and talk to him. And how's life? And how's this going? And how's your family? And it's building that relationship so that I can have a spiritual conversation with Ben. And I'm just going to tell you guys right now, I'm no mechanic, uh, but a couple of months ago, the starter went out on my truck, and you can literally learn anything on YouTube, okay? If you haven't found that out yet, anything. And so I watched a video, I bought the part, but I needed a bigger jack. And I could have gone and I could have bought one, but my neighbor Brandon has a really nice jack. And so I went down to his house and, hey, man, I'm working on my truck. Could I borrow your jack? And not only did Brandon loan me his jack, he got under the truck with me. And for about three hours, we laid there taking out that old starter, putting the new one in, and just talking about life. And, uh, and it opened up the door, and it laid that groundwork for some spiritual conversation. And again, it's just laying down our self-sufficient, I-can-do-it-myself mindset and saying, God, can you use this? Can you use this need in my life to advance your kingdom? What need do you have right now that you could use to start a spiritual conversation? Now, one more thing I want you to see, and we're going to wrap it up here. But in verse 31, Jesus has one more uh, lesson that he wants to teach his disciples. Here's what it says. It says, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Remember, they've gone into town because Jesus was hungry. They got some food. They came back. And Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And don't you think the disciples were like, dude, we just walked all the way to town to get you some food. What have you been eating, right? And his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then he says to the disciples, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. And I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. 
Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, some scholars believe that what Jesus is referencing here is the work of his cousin, John the Baptist. Remember, John was given the task of preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And John primarily was operating kind of in this region right here, not too far from Samaria, not too far from Sychar. And certainly, that message may have made its way into Samaria. Remember? Remember, the woman said in verse 25 that she knew the Messiah was coming. How did she know? How did she know? Well, possibly because of John and his disciples teaching and preparing the way. But regardless of how they knew, they knew, right? They knew about the Messiah. They were watching for him. They were waiting for him. And Jesus says to his disciples in verse 35, open your eyes. Open your eyes because even his own disciples are so focused on the physical, right? Why is he talking to her? She's a Samaritan. We don't associate with them. Jesus, aren't you hungry? Jesus, you should eat something. You look like you're hungry. And Jesus says, open your eyes. Open your eyes. There are people all around you who are in desperate need of a Savior. And they are waiting for someone like you and someone like me to share the hope that is in us. And I believe that Jesus' words to his disciples are the same words that he is speaking to you and me this morning. Open your eyes. And I just wonder this morning if maybe we've been living with some kind of a spiritual blind spot. Blind spots are funny, aren't they? Something that we just can't see at all, but everybody around us can see it perfectly, right? And so sometimes we just need somebody to highlight those blind spots for us. And for some here today, maybe it has to do with that topic of race. And listen, the Bible is really clear on this. It tells us that every tongue and every tribe and every nation will be in heaven for all of eternity. And just so you know, that's people who talk different than you, look different than you, and live different than you. And I hope that you have seen clearly this morning that the message of Jesus is that the gospel is for everyone and racism will not be tolerated in the kingdom of God. And may we respond just like Jesus, walking straight into the Samarias of our day, breaking all of the social rules and loving everyone who God brings into our path. Open your eyes. For others, maybe you're like the woman in this story. And maybe you've become so focused on the physical that you're missing that bigger spiritual reality. And today can be the day when you stop trying to gain happiness just with temporary stuff, temporary fixes. And rather that you would begin a relationship with Jesus Christ and you would find lasting love and joy and peace. That's what a relationship with Jesus provides. Notice Jesus says, if you drink this water, you will never be thirsty again. And so if you find yourself thirsty this morning, you might be drinking from the wrong well. Open your eyes. And finally, many of us Many of us are like the disciples in this story with fields that are ripe for harvest all around us. And remember, Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, right? So the problem isn't the harvest. The problem is this shortage of kingdom workers. And maybe just an easy first step would be to simply ask, God, what need do I have in my life right now that I could leverage to begin a spiritual conversation with someone who is in desperate need of hope 
and salvation and begin to open your eyes to those opportunities. Will you be faithful to these words of Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much this morning for your word. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent your one and only son, not just to die, but to live and to show us how to live and to be our model for life and ministry and to highlight the fact that we have the very same resources that Jesus had in his humanity. Father, find us faithful to tapping into those resources of your word, listening for the voice of your spirit and the guidance of your spirit. Father, coming to you in prayer and then responding in obedience. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. Lord, if you have stirred in their heart in one of these areas that we've highlighted from your word today, Lord, find us faithful to whatever it is that you're calling us to. Find us faithful to your mission of helping people find their way back to God as we strive to live just like Jesus. Lord, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.